Good morning. Our scripture reading for today, um, the Old Testament one will be from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember them by their sins no more. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And then our New Testament reading is from Ephesians 5, verse 15 through 33. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but wise making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. Sing and make music for your heart, from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ loves, does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and love, and the wife must respect her husband. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me, please? You know what we just heard, read. You know the parts that you intended for us to hear that we did and the parts that we couldn't hear because of things in us. You know the protests, the questions, the injuries, the insecurities, the fears. You know all of it. Do not be a terror to us, O Lord. 
Convince us. Convince us that what Paul thought was good news, healing instruction, unity creating counsel, might just be good for us too. Make us able to see what we couldn't before. Make us able to do what we can't indigenously do. Come be with us, Holy Spirit. Even through my words now, visit the people who are here. Visit the people who watch at home. Let them come to think, maybe, just maybe, they're being addressed not just by this man on a stage, but by one who has let these words be preserved and put in the scripture and now in our mouths and hopefully soon in our hearts. Come Holy Spirit, we invite you. Make us glad with your presence, with your word, with your life. Amen. Today, we have a very controversial topic. It's a topic that gets talked about in some ways all the time, but maybe without using the words. It's vastly controversial. It's deeply injurious. It's fraught with misunderstanding. And that topic is reverence. Oh, I fooled you, didn't I? It's interesting to me That the Apostle Paul, when he is addressing this Ephesian church, and he gives us this famous passage on husbands and wives, and husbands being head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, and wives submitting to husbands, and husbands loving their wives as their own bodies. There are parts of this passage that most of us can't hear at all. There are other parts of it that we only hear. And one of the things I want to make sure of today is that you hear the right part. Because nothing that Paul says makes any sense if you don't hear the right part. If you don't have undergirding the right part. And so I want you to hear. And that's why we started before the versification, the paragraph switches. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Paul is talking, giving instructions to people who have been acted upon. And he's telling them how to nurse this new life. You're doing it now. We're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're giving thanks to God the Father. We're learning to get outside of ourselves and realize there is another reality to which we succumb that we are not the authors of our own hope. We are not the authors of our own destiny. We are not the creators of our own life. And we are not the fulfillers of all our own dreams. And Paul has such an enormous 
sense of being connected to Jesus that he can't think of, I'm thinking, we never talked. I hate that. But I'm thinking he almost couldn't think of anything without thinking of Jesus alongside it. I heard Kathy Keller say, wondering aloud, I guess, if this was a result of the fact that his conversion happened like this, that Jesus appeared to Paul. Paul wasn't seeking Jesus. He was seeking to eradicate Jesus, eradicate God's people. He was trying to get rid of this filth that's happening all around us, the filth of Christianity, so-called. And Jesus appears to him. And it's interesting, he doesn't really give him any sort of rationale or he doesn't argue with him about the existence of God or anything like that because he just appears to him. And he is blinded, so that was something. But what he says to him is really fascinating. Why do you persecute me? And you think, huh, I'm not persecuting you. I don't even know who you are. I'm getting rid of these people who are defiling the true faith, the true worship of God. That's what I'm getting rid of. And he says, when you touch a Christian, when you harm another Christian, when you are disrespectful to another Christian, when you are injurious to another Christian, when you speak hatefully, when you hurt someone, you hit them, you take away from them, you're doing every single one of those things to me. And so Paul thinks about that, she says. And he develops in 1 Corinthians 12 this whole idea about this body of Christ, how identified his people are with it. He can't think of his people without thinking of himself, Jesus can't, because his people are himself. That's how closely intermingled they are. My guess is that most of us, the closest approximation we get to that, I think we do get in that in marriage sometimes. And you get it with your kids sometimes. If you've ever had a nervous little girl going off to school and you felt nauseous in your stomach, what's wrong with you? Nothing. Everything's right with you. You've identified so much with her that whatever she's feeling, you're feeling. And so Paul has come to realize, oh, God's people, the people that he has rescued, the people that he has intervened, the people for whom he's borne this curse, they are a people that he is really all about. He can't stop thinking of them. What happens to them is what's happening to him. Their sadness he feels, their hurt he aches from. Their sin creates his grief. When people harm them, it provokes his ire. And so it is with that in mind that Paul says, my whole vision of reality has changed. I now realize that it is Christ, it is Jesus the King with whom I have to deal, first and foremost. 
in every situation. And then he tells this community, who he's also already told as one body, act like one body. God's given you all these different kinds of gifts. He's given you all these different kinds of roles. Some are pastors, some are teachers, some are prophets, some are evangelists. He's apportioned grace to this oneness community so that each one may work out, may do their part like a body so the whole thing can be built up. He's thinking of bodies. He's thinking of Jesus as the head of this body and his body being connected to him and everything that everybody else does affects everything else. And then he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And my guess is that most of us here submit to one another. And we're okay with that. It's going to be the next statement that bothers us the most. Women, wives, submit to your husbands. That's the troublesome thing. Submit to one another is lovely. That's nice. I mean, we don't want to do it, but it sounds good. It's the stuff for dancing and things. Feels courteous, like a brunch. But if you don't get the out of reverence for Christ part, then all the other stuff is really awfully difficult. And so for Paul, this reverence for Christ is something that's cultivated. It's something he can't now not see. But he's wanting us to see it. And anybody who's come into relationship with this Christ theoretically esteems Christ. Theoretically has said, you are king of my life. Theoretically has said, now you have the right, as Mike Mason said, to permanently interfere with every aspect of my life. Do you realize that you said that to Jesus if you are in relationship with him? No, you probably don't, but that's okay. He's very patient. He calls you into fellowship with himself. You respond in faith. You say, I receive. I'll take the cleansing. I'll take the eternal life. You are my Lord. And then little by little, you start to realize he gets bigger and bigger, and you start to realize his influence, his persuasion over you, his sway in your life gets more and more and more, and you realize I have given him the right to permanently interfere with everything in my life. And so you start thinking about stuff like, well, should I be fudging on my taxes? Does Jesus like that? Should I be talking to my wife this way? Should I complain about my husband this way? Should I be engaged with my girlfriend in this way? Should I joke about those people not in our community this way? You start to care about and think about all sorts of things that get brought to your attention because you, realizing it or not, have invited Jesus to be permanent interference in your life. But it's a happy interference, mostly. And it's an interference that comes with it, this assumption, or at least this question. Is there someone 
Who knows better than I do what's best for me? Is there someone in the world, someone in the universe, someone in the heavens who knows better than I do what's best for me? And for the apostle, he can't avoid Christ now. He knows my whole life is bound up in him. Being known by him and knowing him is the best thing I can imagine. I don't care what I have to give up. That scares us because we haven't known him rightly yet. But as you know him more and more, you realize there are things I'll happily give up. There are things I have happily given up, given up, given up. I, sometimes I, I'm a little prejudicial towards the past tense sometimes. Jumping to a hybrided... Well, I tried to use the past tense using the present verb. There are things you'll happily give up as you know Christ and didn't even realize you did it. Because they didn't matter to you anymore. They, they diminished in their importance. And so Paul says, here's the question of your life. Is there anybody besides you who knows better than you what's best for you? I think that's the question of reverence. Because right now, in this room, and on, uh, online, and out in the world, here is a question that wages war in every kind of debate about race, about economics, about politics, about gender, about sexuality. It's whose will is to most be esteemed? Whose wishes are most to be honored? For the Christian, Jesus' will, Jesus' person, is most to be reverenced, most to be esteemed, most to be held into account, most to be listened to. That's why his word becomes so important to us, because we have these apostles who say, I didn't make this stuff up. This isn't just my opinion. It was revealed to me by Jesus Christ. He told me to tell you. He commissioned me. Now, when you discount the Bible, you can say, yeah, yeah, they're idiots. Well, make sure you know you're saying that. Make sure you know you're saying they don't know. They're deceived. When they say, we saw him, we heard from him, we saw him resurrected, we know he's the king, he told us to say these things. When the apostles say all that stuff, when we have the Moses saying that stuff, or Jeremiah saying that stuff, or Ezekiel saying that stuff, make sure you know when you discount it that you're saying they're probably deceived. It can't be that because they think they're saying something really true. And so with that in mind, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for this Christ, which means when you think of, when you see someone else, what you're thinking of is, that's Christ's person. How do I think of them? How do I consider them? How should I act towards them? How would Jesus want me to act towards them? Does someone better know better than me what's best for me? The Christian has a suspicion that there might be other wills out there, including God's, that might be more beneficial for me and for the world than, their, than my own, than what I come up with in my own head. And that leads me to start saying, you know what? Christ says, consider others better than myself. Consider their interests beyond mine. You know, Paul commends Timothy and says, not everyone. I got nobody else like him. 
Everybody looks out for their own interests. But Timothy's a guy who looks out for your interests, which he equates to the interests of Christ. When you're thinking about someone else's interests instead of and in front of your own, you're thinking of Christ's interests. You're reverencing him. You're letting him be the lens through which you start to see everything. And when you are reverencing him, then you can come into relationships with your community, with your spouse, and then you can listen to what Paul's saying, which is really a kind of way of saying, do you come into a relationship to offer or to demand? Most married people, most married people don't realize they're doing this, but they come into their marriage with this demand. I heard Tim Keller say this. I think it's right. Modern marriages have this demand. Accept me as I am and do not ever change me. I shall not be changed by you. You should fulfill me. You should help me achieve my goals and my dreams. Marriage is about my self-fulfillment. That is my demand. People haven't thought that about marriage in the history of the world, but we think that about marriage. And it works out well, because, you know, most of them end. Because what happens when you have two people who make a, they're not making covenants, they're making a contract, a contract you already plan in advance for how the thing's going to end. A covenant has no end. It's permanent. That's what marriage is, and it's Christianized. You have two people who come into the marriage, each demanding their own self-fulfillment, each demanding that the other not interfere with them. What else is going to happen? They're going to be at odds. They're going to be at war. They're going to fight at each other, going to be suspicious of each other because the other one is always, always, always going to be standing in the way of whatever it is they think they need and want. Mike Mason says, one of the things you can say about your spouse and one of the things you can say about marriage is it is like a giant tree growing up in the middle of your living room. And whatever else you can say about the tree, you must say this, it is there. It has to be taken into account. You can't go to the kitchen without walking around it. You can't go to the bathroom without seeing it there. You can't go through the living room. Every single thing about your life has to take into account this giant tree right in the center of your life. A permanent interference. You can chop down the tree, but the whole house will explode. The whole house will come crumbling. But when you're reverencing Christ and you're saying, ah, somebody better than me knows better than me what's best for me, and they have given me this wife. They have given me this husband. Christians believe that sort of thing. That the spouse you got was not an accident then all of a sudden, out of reverence for him, you can start to say as a wife, what do I demand from my husband? What do I give to my husband? Paul says, here's what you should give to him. Give him the respect. Wives must respect their husbands. Give him your submission. Consider his authority that God has conferred to him as something to be taken into account in some way. And you think, well, I can't and you start your carotid arteries start to bake 
And you say, well, what's the alternative? Submit or what? Be hostile to him? Yield to him or be his adversary? Yield to him, support or undermine him? What's the alternative? Paul's just asked the whole community to submit to each other. And in the ancient world, of course, it was a foregone conclusion. And Paul thinks that this is how the universe is configured. This is one of those passages where he can say, the Bible is really hard. It's really hard to understand. It's not really that hard to understand here. It's hard to like. It's hard to know, does this mean what it says? Or what Paul says in his world, is it applicable in our world? Now, that's the question. But it's not hard to understand. He says that a husband has headship or authority like Christ does over the church. You're like, well, what does headship mean? Well, what is Christ's thing over the church? He's it's, he has authority over it. So that's not that complicated. But the question is, like, what are we giving? What, wives, what, are, what do you give to your husband? Or what do you demand from him? And Paul says, as he says to the whole community, we're people who are yielding to each other, preferring each other's will, listening to one another, letting what someone else wants be more important than what I want. Which is just what he says, the church has been given this role in the, in the world. The church, where people who say to Jesus, you may permanently interfere with all the rest of my life. I'm yielding myself to you as much as I know, as much as I'm able Will you help me in this? We're one. But then for husbands, as he's saying, what do you offer and what do you demand? He's saying, here's what you do with your, this sense of responsibility that you have for your family, for your house, for your wife. Spend it on a preoccupation with your wife's well-being. As the church submits to Christ, the wives must submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What are you offering versus what are you demanding? It strikes me very easy. It's easy for me to see that in this, this drama, these Kellers I heard say years ago, in this drama of redemption that Paul says has happened. This is what's happened cosmically in the world. Jesus has looked down at us with all kinds of wrinkles and blemishes. He doesn't pick a pretty bride. He picks you and me. And he says, I'm going to love you and you can't make me not. I'm going I'm to sacrifice for you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to affirm you. I'm going to sacrifice till you are clean so that one day you will radiate with my love. That is my intention. That is the cosmic goal. When history ends, that's what's going to happen. The church and Jesus meet up like a bride and bridegroom, elegantly, masterfully, wondrously prepared 
because of Jesus' diligence. And in this drama that's happening cosmically, God has given roles within the marriage. He said, wives, you take the church role. Husbands, you take the Jesus role. It's like a casting director in a play. Not everybody gets to play every part. But very often, husbands and wives don't want the part that's assigned to them. There's a lot of men who have a lot of Michael Scott in them, especially these days. Michael Scott has given authority in his office. He's been assigned to fire someone. You know what he hopes he has, that will happen? That someone will volunteer to quit so he doesn't have to make the decision. Dwight comes to him and says, I got another job. And he's like, yes, his best salesman. He doesn't care. He said, you got me off the hook. I don't have to exercise any authority. I don't have to do anything hard. I don't have to do anything that I've been asked to do. I failed like that. One of the scariest things for me is for Kathy to say, what do you think we should do? Uh, No, 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 no. That defies the conventions, lady. What's supposed to happen is like you just decide stuff and I'll just go along and we'll all be happy. Don't say, what do you think we should do? Because then I might have to, 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 to say something and decide something. And then, then you might, you, I might hurt you. You might be upset with me. I, never mind. I don't know. You just be alone in the decision by yourself. You decide everything. A lot of wives are asked to submit to their husbands. You're like, have you seen my husband? He's an idiot. Why would I defer to someone who's clearly doesn't have an ounce, like a molecule of intelligence in their body? Why would I do that? And Paul says to husbands and wives, well, because of Christ. Because Christ thought your wife was fantastic, and so he spilled his blood for her. Christ thought your husband was worth sacrificing for. He's not giving up on him, and he's not giving up on your wife. Whether you're angry or resentful or hard or mean, or he's not giving up. It's worth thinking sometimes. If Jesus were real, just imagining, say Jesus is real. And say he appeared to you. And he said, as you're sitting there watching the crown or NASCAR, March Madness or whatever it is you watch. He said, I have a noble task for you. You say, oh, yes, Lord, what is it? Something important? Yes, incredibly important. I want to fulfill my purposes for you, and I would like for you to to interrupt your viewing and go into that room where that little girl is screaming in her crib and get the poop off of her bottom and give her a new diaper so that your spouse doesn't have to do it. And you think, oh, I'm sorry, what? I thought you said you had something important for me to do. And, I, and Jesus says, yeah, I do. I asked you to do it. The king asked you to do it for his sake. Do 
you realize that's the situation that we're in? The king has sent you to work each day. The king sends you into the community each, each day. And his commands and his desires, they're not abstract. And that is the problem for most of us. For most people, the problem with Christianity is not abstract enough. It's too specific. The problem with marriage, says Mike Mason, is that it's not abstract enough. It's too specific. Love always comes down to very specific things. Submission comes down to very specific things. I saw a guy on Twitter say, I gave up on Jesus. I never experienced him. Mental health is my salvation now. And there's a lot of young people saying things like that. And what I would wonder is, did you ever try obeying him? Was that the problem? That he said, I have some goals for you, and they have to do with your money and with your heart and with your time and with your body. There's some prohibitions and there's some exhortations, and all of it is undergirded by a great deal of grace. It says, you don't know what's best for you, but I sure do, and I'm not going to quit. He didn't promise us experiences, but he did promise us life unending and his union with us. What are you offering? What are you demanding? Does someone know better than you what's best for you? Some of this stuff we're going to have to slow down. I've had a bad hurt back this week, a couple of days. It happens once a year. I wish I could predict when and then I wouldn't have that time. One of the things that happens when you have a hurt part of your back, like you have a hurt part of your marriage, or a hurt part of your heart, is it slows you down. Pandemic has slowed us down, some of us. Most people in marriage are trying to do too much. Most Christians are trying to do too much, and they just simply don't have the space to see each other, to think of each other, to think, who is this mysterious woman that Christ has put in my life, this mysterious man, or this mysterious roommate, for those of you who are unmarried, this, this life that I've been given, out of reverence for Christ, what is entrusted to me? And the one who entrusts it is the one who has said, I am going to love you. And you can't make me not. And this is the community that's permeated with nourishing and nourished by this very love. Will you give yourselves to the reverencing of this Christ who has given himself to the project of making you radiant. Let's give ourselves to each other. Amen.